0: The Future by Stéphane Molyneux, Chapter 34 I was allowed to roam around the hospital, which generally catered to people being lowered into the grave by an almost unfathomable number of decades. The staff told me that most diseases had been eliminated, the dying muttered darkly about these cataclysms which had so reduced the population. Unusually for me, I shied away from these details because David had hinted that I had had something to do with these mysterious disasters, and I didn't want to burden myself with any imaginary guilt or foreboding. It was strange. I'd never really had this kind of leisure before. I worked hard and early and rarely took a day off. I was writing my autobiography when I got really sick. That's probably why my early life filled my brain as I woke. (laughs) And I laughed when I remembered this, because nobody on earth could imagine the final chapters to be... to be this. I lived to work. I only survived this forced inactivity because I was learning to regain control over my body. My resurrection project my name not theirs involved learning how to use my limbs almost from scratch it had reminded me of the first time as a kid in a Chinese restaurant trying to pick up a boiled egg with chopsticks so I suppose I had a job which was learning how to crawl out of a coffin and master the world I was prone to strange fits of emotion which continually baffled me I focused on the present on what I could touch and taste, but so often I would feel a kind of thin silver cord stretching back through the centuries, from me to everything that was before. I had lived my life as a captain on the prow of a ship, guiding and commanding as we sliced through the parting waves. From this view of myself, a realistic one, I now had to view the ship of my life as an encrusted wreck lost in the depths of history, brought to the surface by robot magic and half-decayed muscles. I felt cold rage as well, when I was too exhausted to work my muscles and had to lie with my own thoughts. I used to mutter a prayer to the demons of doubt before going to bed, so they would Leave me alone for the fifteen minutes it took me to fall asleep, the window they always tried to crawl through. But sleep was uncertain now. I had slept too much for many lifetimes, and they scratched and called incessantly. Power is the power to avoid yourself. I had felt this iciness before, throughout my life and it was a constant sign that some interest of mine was being threatened. My instinct was to leap into action to protect what was mine, to gather the necessary weapons to reward and punish the pawns of the world into parting before me, supporting me, paving my way. And I found myself jumping up, reaching for a non-existent phone, angry words of stern command rising in my throat. I wanted to yell for secretaries, get reporters on the line, threaten to withhold funds, offer subsidies, collude in the foggy back rooms of ultimate power. But but there was nothing. I had no power, at least not yet. And no threads ran from my hands to the testicles of anyone around. It was like styling all over again. Physically, obviously, but also... No, it was worse than starting over because I didn't even have my father's power to piggyback on. My father would always tell me when I was a teenager, all I can do is get you in the room, son. After that, it's up to you. But in politics, perhaps everywhere, I don't know, access is power, and I could always get my father on the line. He never made... Explicit promises or threats. I was way too smart for that. But everyone knew that he wanted me to rise, to be offered opportunities, to learn how to strengthen my being by learning the magic words of control. I thought I needed to learn how to work the media. A media that had plans for all of us that seemed larger, deeper, and, and, and more threatening than any power we as individuals could gather even when I was president. I controlled everyone around me, but I knew that I was controlled as well by that media which could make or break a candidate in any 90-second slice, 24 hours a day. They promised to get me into power, and they sure as hell helped, but they never seemed to want anything in return. Everything I did was balanced on the knife edge of unenforceable contracts, handshakes and winks and nods and understandings. But the media that pushed me into power, pushed me on the population, never asked for anything in return. I remember asking my father about this, but he just laughed. These are semi-divine mysteries, son. They got me in, but never wanted anything back either. If they are the devils, they never get to collect. They must have learned how to live without souls, I suppose. I said, is it that they don't want to pay trail, or, or to be recorded or, or, or why? Every time my phone rings, I think it's going to be some media mogul using a voice changer telling me to nuke the Kremlin, or they'll do to me what they did to my opponent. "'Oh, remember that guy who left his phone on the subway? "'They went through everything, published everything. "'Found out he was into weird tentacle stuff from Japan. "'Why don't they ever call?' "'He shrugged, filling his veins with micro-sips of whiskey, as usual. "'Dunno, son. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth, I suppose. (laughs) "'This is the only time that rule applies. "'Every other gift horse in politics is a Trojan. "'But these guys, who knows what they're up to? "'It doesn't really matter.' Just keep doing whatever you were doing that got their support, and you'll be fine. I remember the second time I ran. I cornered a media mogul at a winter party, a bald guy with a giant jaw and hunched shoulders. (laughs) As if I were running for a local school board, I, I put my hand on his shoulder, his very soft and sloping shoulder, and asked if I could count on his support. He looked at me blankly, and I swear I'd seen more human animation than the two coals I stuck in my kid's snowman's face that morning. We support democracy, Mr. President, said the man. His bald dome reminded me of a recently found dinosaur egg stillborn for 200 million years. For one of the few times in my life, up until now, I let my "'compulsive curiosity get the better of me. "'You've always been very kind to me,' the man nodded blankly, "'his cocktail eyes roaming the room like a creepy portrait in a haunted house, "'following naive thieves. "'I wonder, do you believe in me?' "'The mogul turned to me, but his eyes appeared to fix on the wall behind my head. "'We believe in democracy, Mr. President. "'But you must—' Agree with what I represent, a tiny smile. What would you say you represent? I suddenly couldn't remember anything. All the speeches and and debates and policy papers suddenly turned to ash in my head, like a library under the nuclear fire of a blowback bomb. The will of the people, I said somewhat lamely. The tiny smile grew. Well... That's more than good enough for us. There was a slightly awkward pause. I said, in, in my game, everything comes with a payback. Everyone has a price. It's not all money. Some people want power, of course, and some, some people want to pursue their, their ideals. He interrupted me, which I recognized immediately as a power play, which few dared to impose on a sitting president. Which do you think you represent, Mr. President, of the three categories you mentioned? Or is there another that you haven't? It was an oddly Frankenstein sentence stitched together out of order. I leaned forward, thrilled, as if I were revealing a secret. i tell you something. Whenever I feel low, not often, mind, I just read an article you've written about me, and I find myself regarding myself like my wife looked up at me on a wedding night. The mogul slowly nodded. We hold the mirror up to nature. He emphasized the last word slightly. Human nature? Nature itself? The man's words were a mirror maze. I couldn't help myself. What do you get out of it? He looked at me, curiously, and traced the bowl of his chin from one side of his lip to the other, back and forth. Wait a minute. He's tracing the letter U on his face. He means you. We get you. I shook my head. Paranoia was all well and good for a politician, but it doesn't serve your purpose when the media is serving your needs. The giant jaw stifled an obvious yawn. What's really on your mind, Mr. President? Are you afraid we will not continue to support democracy? No. I just wanted to thank you for your altruism. There is a kind of purity in our relationship in that we don't actually have a relationship. The fingers stopped tracing the chin and tapped it instead, as if trying to patiently create an attractive dimple. I thought of Spartacus on a cross. Purity, he said musingly, enjoying some obscure joke. He reminded me of the Cheshire cat, obviously, but also something that my wife sometimes talked about whenever we would watch some old Jane Austen series, which was the woman, but the heroines, always had this secret smile. Oh, it's so predictable, she would say with enjoyable exasperation. They always open with this apple-cheeked heroine strolling the countryside with her secret smile, the smile that says she has an interior life of superior amusement, which the man can buy forever for the low, low price. Of a wedding ring. And she would turn and give me that secret smile. And it really was remarkable how adept she was at creating the alluring illusion of inner amusement. And how damned attractive it was, too. She laughed. (laughs) All the women know how to do it, at least the slightly less than classical beauties do. The rest rely on cheekbones and cleavage. That's what you were eyeing when we met, but hovering above my décolletage was my secret smile, which was all the more powerful because you refused to look at it directly. I laughed with her then. (laughs) Are you saying that this weird, abused smile is like a soft trap that men fall into? Oh yes, willingly, happily. You were all just so pathetically grateful for female attention. We spend most of our lives rejecting the men we don't want, so getting the man we do want to approach us is like coaxing a wild squirrel to feed from our palm. Come here, boy. Don't be afraid. We won't bite. Nice food for you. You're all so nervous. It makes no sense that you run the world. Do we? I murmured. I I didn't even know about the secret smile that is the entire foundation of our family, apparently. I came back from my reverie, having completely forgotten the thread of the conversation. You headed off to parts unknown, said the bald man. Most unprofessional. I couldn't tell if he was joking. (laughs) Reprimanding the president was a fairly risky business. I had a sudden sense of falling, as if I had reached the summit of a high mountain that was now collapsing into the widening mouth of a volcano. Who is in charge? The words dried in my mouth. My tongue turned into a tombstone. I'm going to put this down as a lapse, said the giant-jawed mogul pleasantly. Everyone has these doubts, suspended, between heaven and hell. Success! he added, energetically raising a fist. I knew he wouldn't leave the conversation. That was an unwritten but absolute rule when talking to me. But I also knew that he was finished with the interaction. Again... I felt a mild disorientation and wondered if I might not be coming down with something, some virus or malaise. The ship analogy rose in my mind again because it felt like the shiny wooden floor was tilting. Well, since you're being impartial, since you claim to be, and I'm I'm sure that you are, then I don't have anything to thank you for, but I do appreciate that your dedication to democracy and, and the good... Stewardship of the nation t- tilts my way so often. Uh, I suppose I appreciate that you appreciate, appreciate my virtues so, such as they are. Dear God, shut up, man, cried every one of my horrified political instincts. I felt an acute vulnerability that I would normally smash through with anger, and, and, and suddenly I was the desperate one who, who wanted to leave the conversation. I pretended to to be summoned from somewhere else in the room. I could tell that the mogul knew I was faking and that he approved for some obscure reason. I made it over to my wife, who was currently blinding some young ingenue with the disco spray of white light coming off her diamond necklace. Her cleavage crusting was like the puffed-out red neck of a monkey. I pulled her away and related the conversation. "'Well, this is rather unlike you, dear,' she said, seemingly unconcerned. "'You've got an ace in the hole, a groundswell of support. "'Clearly they love you to death. "'What the hell are you doing poking around such an updraft?' "'Her uncanny habit of effectively mixing metaphors struck me for the thousandth time. "'I guess I'm just having a moment. "'I, I want to know what they're getting out of it. "'Why? "'I don't know. "'I, I, I barely made it in last time, and I'm older. i more, more tired. "'Dear?' she said with that peculiar feminine decisiveness that instantly kills the motor of an over-revving male mind. I will give you this one exception because your instincts are usually so good. She brushed off some imaginary dust from my tuxedo labels, which gave her the excuse to lean in with a broad smile and say, do not screw this up. They like you because you are you. By asking them why they like you, you are changing who you are. Just stop it. If you never ask the question, their support is as certain as my goddamn bra. If you ask again, she whispered, Kaboom. Of course, she was right. I understand now, thinking back on it, that they didn't need to ask for anything in return for supporting me, because my presence in the White House was their payoff. Something about me was a return on investment. And then I apparently killed half the planet, and my son the other half. My joke fell flat in my mind, impaled on the sharp top of my spine. So, I had to learn how to walk all over again. And I had to learn how to talk without power, without influence. It was like being a baby with certain knowledge of a past life. Chapter 35 I first met Cornelius Krieghorn the same day I successfully walked across the torture chamber known as my physical therapy room. As someone with no shortage of charisma myself, I recognized his power because his personality seemed to enter the room before his body did. Like when, when my kid brother used to rub his feet on a carpet and zap my earlobe with his electrified finger. You could feel it before it happened, but too late to stop it. Cornelius was not fat, he was overweight enough, compared to the lean inhabitants of this post-postmodern world, to stand out in a crowd. His white hair curled in mobius ripples along his skull. His fleshy face still retained the lines normally associated with leaner visages. His eyes were dangerously merry, as if to say, I will tell you my jokes, and you will laugh now, but be appalled later. I also recognized that he was strong and certain enough in his dominance that being submissive did not bother him in the least. In fact, he used that tactic with me regularly, which I appreciated, despite my better instincts. He swept into the room, like a pendulum at the bottom of its arc. Unstoppable. Inevitable. I stuck out my hand to shake his out of a sudden strange anxiety that if I didn't, he would just... Walk right through me. Good morning, Mr. President, he said in his rich, mellifluent voice. It contained honey and ease and subterranean power. My wife claimed a God given ability to know who was a good singer, just based on his or her speaking voice. She would have guessed Paul Robeson Baritone. The man said, My name is Cornelius Krieghorn, and with your permission, we will become close and fast friends. He flopped into a chair too small for him, in a way that only amplified the bulk of his meaty presence. He leaned forward conspiratorially. How much have they told you about what they have in store? Clever, I thought. He is aligning himself with me already. "'You must be a lawyer,' I said. "'His eyes widened, and he raised a finger to his lips. "'Shh, we don't use that word here anymore. "'It has an unholy ring to it. "'I am your representative, your guide, so to speak, "'as we aim to navigate the a situation that lies ahead of us.' "'He stared at me expectantly, but I said nothing, of course.' You are, most likely, going to be put on trial for various crimes that you committed over the course of your administration. Alleged crimes, of course, as I will constantly reiterate. And I shall be your human shield, your armor, your... He pulled his hands apart slowly. Bullet-time slowdown of whizzing principles. Your angel, if you understand the reference. I did feel a bit dizzy. And a secret thought came to me, as it had for decades, that I never would have shared with anyone under any circumstances at any time. Stroke of the pen, law of the land. When I was president, I would wake up every morning in a disorienting and dizzy daze, completely astonished that I could Not exactly get away with, but do what I did. I was not a lawyer, but I knew the law. Through the central bank, I... I know it was more we could create a trillion dollars with the snap of a finger. Another snap, we could raise the debt ceiling. Another snap, we could force people to buy things they did not want. Another snap, we could legally buy votes by firing Monopoly money at the dull-witted, open-mouthed masses. The media covered for us destroying our enemies with lies, saving us with lies. I never played Monopoly with a kid who thought you could just pencil in more zeros on the paper money to pretend to pay your debts. But that's how we all governed, across the world, all across history. I remember being sworn in on that bitterly cold day and remembering the long ago, long dead priest of my childhood telling me that with the right scissors, the Bible was a manual for atheists. In the Bible it says, The fool in his heart has said, There is no God. He chuckled. (laughs) Take off the first seven words. And you can prove that right there in the Bible it says, that there is no God. There is a reason that Satan is called the master of lies. Lie about a man, and he is cornered, erased, destroyed. Call him a monster, and he either struggles to deny it, attaching the label even more, or he ignores it, which makes him look like a coward as well as a monster. And even if he somehow struggles through to legal proof of his innocence, you just have to ignore it and keep lying and it will be as if he never fought at all. You know the term McCarthyism. Joseph McCarthy won a libel suit against a newspaper, but it doesn't matter now, and it didn't matter then. It doesn't matter that books have been published proving that he was even more right than he knew. It doesn't matter that the Soviet Union released decrypted cables proving McCarthy's allegations. None of that matters. The myth becomes the truth. The truth becomes the moral. And all who oppose the moral are labeled evil. Most people are failures, relative to their youthful dreams, at least. So they're always hungry for any fall from grace narrative. Find the stain on the hero, and you make a hero out of the stain, because it releases people from regret, at least for the moment. All who are great are examined for flaws, And the flaws are magnified to swallow up the greatness. And people grab at these flaws with great hunger, mad need. Greatness is an insult to the pettiness of their lost lives. People don't feel short in Japan until a Swede strides in. The destruction of the ideal is the fundamental plan of most mankind. Resentment, bitterness, rage... These are all potent fuels used to light the pyres that burn down anyone who makes them feel inferior or makes them feel their inferiority, which is not quite the same thing. The old priest had an odd habit of chewing gum, puncturing his deep sermons with wet pink pops. And Satan tempts the great with pettiness, with silly flaws and blemishes and the greats so often succumb, partly because they know that if they offer up the sacrifice of their own greatness, the mob just might let them live. This is why happily married men constantly reiterate that their wives somehow put up with them. This is why beautiful women denigrate their own dresses, their own figures. The world lives in a constant terror of resentment. The zombie mob of Abandoned ideals is constantly hungry to feast on any grand souls who escaped their own smallness. Any greatness that exists without appeasing the mob invites its own self-destruction. Any man who arises from humble origins and achieves superiority, in particular moral superiority, must be sacrificed. The hatred the mob has for its own self-betrayal is projected onto the hero and he is slaughtered as a warning to their own potential. The mob destroys the hero to justify its own rejection of its capacity for heroism. Mothers need neighborhood children who are harmed by not listening to mothers as examples to force obedience from their own children. The mob needs to destroy its heroes in order to turn its own cowardice into pragmatic wisdom. Only when the heroes are separated by enough time, usually centuries, can the mob start to worship them. When the world of the present no longer matches the world of the hero, the hero can be tentatively respected, because the hero's life was so different that it no longer repudiates the current cowardice of the mob. The mob can revere Socrates only when separated by a thousand years. The supply of lies about heroes is driven by the demand for those lies. And the demand is driven by the need to escape the self-hatred of a cowardly life. Sophists cook up falsehoods because the mob is so hungry for them. The sweet relief of projecting pettiness into the souls of great men is too addictive, too delicious. Father Gregory Taught me a lot. He thought he was teaching me humility, wisdom. Oh no. God, no. The good father taught me how to rule. When you understand that most men break themselves into atoms, into nothing, and they Desperately need a scapegoat for their own self destruction. And becoming a politician. Simple. People who fail to even try are life's losers, and they desperately need to invent bias to justify their own lifeless lives. I failed because people hate me is the bottomless mantra of these empty lives. The real hatred is for the self and usually justly earned. But it is a fertile crop to feed the pursuit of power. It really is power, if you take a moment to think about it. Politics is always about the punishment of success, and its mirror image, the bribery of failure. Anyone who doesn't pay sufficient obsequiousness to the twitchy mob is marked for destruction. Better lace up his running shoes. The media magnified my enemies' flaws and hid my certain crimes. They invented the most errant nonsense about my foes, that they were colluding with foreign powers to steal elections, that they praised bigots and hated women, you name it, and covered up my own blindingly obvious corruption. (laughs) Frankly, it was all pretty amusing. And I've never been one to stand between a mob and the effects of its mistakes. The mob wanted lies. The mob punished the truth. So the mob was ruled by liars. And truth-tellers scrambled to obscurity for safety. Occasionally, one or two honest souls would erupt and even be tolerated for a time but the moment they interfered with the pursuit of power... Ah, well. Lies were invented, reputations destroyed, access to the public was detonated, and they withdrew to their distant caves of bitter wisdom. They served as wonderful examples to the mob, and of the mob's power. I used to wonder, sometimes, if I had been raised in a more honest age if such an age ever existed if i would have been tempted by abstract virtues the virtues talked about by my father gregory in particular the commandment thou shalt not bear false witness he used to tell me over and over there's a reason it does not say thou shalt not lie False witness is a legal phrase. It means don't lie about important matters of morality, as if you were in a courtroom. It is the theological equivalent of perjury. No one cares about little white lies. They rarely lead to major corruption. But when you are asked about important matters of conscience, of virtue, of honor and reputation, then by heaven you must tell the truth or be damned. I used to question him about hell back when it was a thing. He would shrug and pop his endless gum. Hell is just an analogy for how desperately we are addicted to lies. A man greatly tempted by great evils needs great punishment to restrain himself. The church had to escalate the punishment to eternal hell itself, which is not really in the Bible, because that's how tempted we are to lie for advantage If we weren't so tempted by lying, and if it wasn't so profitable in the here and now, we wouldn't need endless lakes of fire and torture to consider rejecting the temptation. Even when he used to sit and talk with me about these issues, I could tell that he himself was a frustrated moralist, and I had heard hints of the crimes of his congregation. I felt a great weariness and avoidance settle upon me. Father Gregory liked to walk and talk in the graveyard. I suppose he felt that Hamlet-style that gave his words extra spicy depth and power. And the sliding shadows of the gravestones would slowly crawl up our legs as the sun fell in the sky. But his frustration had the opposite effect, as frustration usually does. By endlessly talking about the impossibility of virtue and the power of the mob he finally convinced me that i must either end up ruling the mob or waste my life frightening then boring children in a graveyard of course my earthly father paved the way but it was my spiritual father who laced up my shoes Why wage endless war against endless temptation? Why take up arms against the mob that can always overwhelm you with blank numbers? Why reject the reality that lies can summon gold from the shallow earth? Why not just embrace it, get it over with, and rule? Of course, my priest would say that we must reject the material, resist the temptations to escalate into heaven... But it always seemed lonely, his vision of white clouds and droning angels. The masses of men are beasts, worse than beasts who can never reason. To me, the select few who make it to heaven seemed increasingly to be a pompous lot full of self-congratulation, smug superiority, and a preening avoidance of the necessary battles of this earth. Live for heaven, abandon the world. To who? Increasingly, to people like me. Moralists produce malevolence. Because by accurately describing the world... They turn morality into masochism. The mob uses moralists to create anti-moralists. By punishing and excluding the virtuous, they train the young to avoid virtue. The mob would never complain about my crimes because the mob was a criminal enterprise. Would they ever call me out? Does the mafia call the cops? I had an opponent early on when I was running for governor. In a truly stunning development, and I mean that most sincerely, he actually tried telling the truth to the masses as if he knew nothing about the history of theology and philosophy. He told them... (laughs) that the welfare state was destroying the family, that the national debt was selling the next generation into financial slavery, that the government existed to protect itself, not them, and that there was no money left to fund old-age security, and so the richest generation in the history of the world was pillaging the young to fatten itself. (laughs) I watched his speeches in literal awe, sometimes live, His words (laughs) struck me like the match struck that old Buddhist who set himself on fire. He seemed to be the incarnation of the old myth that those outside the circle of power always tell themselves, you know, how they're going to pretend to be power-hungry and corrupt, rise to grab the ring of power, and then wield it for good. (laughs) Never happens, of course, then. (laughs) They would either get corrupted along the way, or they would be quickly identified and ejected. Destroyed, most likely. Power never lasts if it is unable to detect those who would corrupt its corruption. And our power has lasted for tens of thousands of years. Man, the media just shredded him. Revealed his address, where his children went to school, where everyone in his social circle worked. And all the glorious, bloody-fingered foot soldiers of falses quickly went to work, filling his mailbox with death threats, mailing thick envelopes filled with baby powder to everyone he knew, protesting at their workplaces and demanding they be fired, targeting the clients of their businesses, getting them cancelled on social media. Ah, oh, it was a gloriously coordinated campaign. The beauty of it was that it was coordinated not by any central planner, but by a completely unified and streamlined self-interest. Once the government keeps people alive, at least as they see it, any proposal to reduce government expenditures is experienced as a death threat by those dependent on the government. And really, it was about half the population by the time I came around. Everyone was worried about a civil war when the civil war actually started long in the past, when direct payments to the poor began. (sighs) My opponent was instructive, very instructive, particularly to my own occasionally uneasy conscience. He was hounded out of not just public life, but life itself. He ended up buying a farm in the middle of nowhere, and was still occasionally photographed hoeing the back 40, or whatever the hell farmers do, as a warning shot to anyone who might even think of bringing uncomfortable truths to the mindless masses. His campaign inoculated an entire generation against idealism. They bayed over his destruction like giggling hyenas chancing upon a fresh kill. His children turned against him, his wife stayed by his side only because his destruction had left Herbert no civilized options. The man couldn't even get a credit card. He literally had to eat what he killed in the wilderness. <laughs> Frankly, truth-tellers made my job so much easier. Their crucifixion allowed my life to bleed freely across the landscape, turning the entire horizon a profitable, rusty red. And I used to wonder, when I was younger, before I got into the game, whether people in power really did meet in smoky back rooms to cut deals. And of course we did, when it came to regulations and legislation. But in terms of what was necessary to maintain power as a whole, in principle, well, no one needed to meet about that because no one got to our level of control without deeply understanding how to maintain the machinery of the mob. If you train citizens to attack each other for telling the truth, free speech is dead. Of course, it's deceptively simple to have a right in theory while having no capacity to exercise it in any practical manner. Citizens had the right to free speech but they were doxed and destroyed when they exercised it, so we didn't have to worry about that at all. I could be dignified and above the fray and refuse to respond to even sensible criticism, knowing full well that either the media or the black-clad street enforcers would destroy my critics. All this, and more perhaps, floats through my mind, as Cornelius Krieghorn stares at me expectantly. I clear my throat, feeling my old self rear up in my mind. Problems with your formulation of my crimes, I say crisply. Number one, I never killed anyone. And unless your legal system is radically different from every other legal system in the known universe, the statute of limitations for any other crime must surely have expired after so many centuries. Number two, You are judging me by your own current legal system, not by the legal system I operated under. Number three, I am an unwilling refugee in your society and so cannot be imagined as ever having consented to live under your laws. Number four, while ignorance of the law is no excuse, I have no idea what your laws are and would have no way of knowing, so I cannot be bound by them. Number five, All witnesses, or those with direct knowledge of whatever events are in question, are many centuries dead, and so cannot be called to testify. Number six, I cannot cross-examine, or you can't, any of my accusers, because those I allegedly wronged, are also dead these many centuries. I'm sure there are more, but that should be enough. Cornelius stares at me in that unsettling modern manner of open-minded curiosity that frustrates and enrages me no end get it all off your chest he suggests kindly i feel another stab of anger i rise awkwardly my cane leaps into my hand but i throw it aside well it's also ridiculous i never expected to wake up to be president or in charge of course i can't really say that i thought much about waking up at all i was just Sprinting away from the man in black. I expected, now, I suppose, to be a kind of resource for history, for, for the past. And as a preeminent historical figure, I know that there are always controversies, but I suppose I hoped that these controversies would be somewhat ameliorated by the passage of time, and some kind of settling would have occurred on perspectives of my presidency. "'I did not expect to still be controversial so many centuries after my—' Cornelius nods slowly. "'Rule, Mr. President. "'I think you were about to say rule.' "'I shrug tightly. "'That's not the right word. "'We were a democracy, a republic. "'And by the way, where the hell am I, geographically? "'Am I on the landmass formerly known as the United States?' "'Well, you woke up where you went to sleep, of course.' "'You've not been moved in the interim?' "'I don't know what the hell you people are capable of!' "'I grumble, though without conviction.' "'There is a slight pause, "'and Cornelius gestures for me to continue, "'which makes little sense to me. "'Look,' he says easily after a minute or two has passed, "'you don't have to retain me. "'This is—you used to call it pro bono, I think. "'A hobby.' "'A fetish, perhaps?' he laughs. "'I am very curious about you, Mr. President.' "'And I'm not alone in that, of course. "'You're right. "'You are a polarizing and significant, "'highly significant historical figure. (laughs) "'Believe it or not, "'you have your defenders as well as your detractors. "'You are not exactly polarizing. "'We are not that interested in politics.' which has become a merely historical discipline or curiosity. But you are... There are people divided about your legacy and your choices. On the one hand, there are those who say that you are a product of your time, as we all are, of course, and that we should not judge you according to modern or rational sensibilities. On the other hand, there are those who say that morality is eternal and universal, those who know about your relationship with Father Gregory. Are you startled? I have a sudden uneasy feeling. Father Gregory? I take a deep breath. How much do you people actually know about me? I thought that everything was lost, like the library at Alexandria during these mysterious cataclysms. Cornelius shrugs. Well... There are claims, and then there is the truth. And sometimes it seems that never the twain shall meet, at least in a courtroom. I thought everyone in the future was perfect and never lied. Cornelius smiles wryly. Perfection is for the past, for abstractions, for dreams, vanity, and ambition, never in the here and now. I'm a healthy man, considered overweight by some, and have a small cyst on my right shoulder. Am I in perfect health? Doesn't mean anything. People in the here and now disagree about contracts and property and the breakups of their marriages and a whole host of other problems. They're not omnipresent, and they're not insurmountable, but they still need to be resolved. And fortunately there is. Enough human imperfection left in this perfect world for me to still make a decent living resolving disputes. He wags his finger slowly. But... But I have never come across something like this, which is why I... leapt at the opportunity to work with you, to represent you, if you will have me. He smiles modestly. I am on the side of letting sleeping dogs lie, which is to say that I was on the side of not waking you. Oh, my apologies for comparing you to a dog. But, woken you were, and you will need to find a way into this world to live here among us for many decades, I dare say. What do you do about immigration? Cornelius looks surprised for a moment, then laughs. <laughs> Why, of course... You are an immigrant, not from other shores, but other centuries. What was called in your day a dreamer, I think? An unwilling immigrant, brought here by circumstances, just as children were brought to your country by their parents. Or perhaps you are analogous to a man who has committed a crime while sleepwalking. But (laughs) you asked about immigration, sorry. Sorry. I have a wandering mind, a gypsy brain. Moving is not a violation of the non-aggression principle. Anyone can come to live here who wants to live here, and who can secure a contract to operate within the machinery of modernity. You can't get anything done here without some kind of contract, although the DROs make it as easy and painless as possible. And if a DRO will take you on, then... You can participate in all the glories of the bottom world. But you'd be surprised at how few people actually want to move here. It's really quite remarkable, because if I still lived in a status society, I would be trying to get out like a crazed ferret digging its way out of an overturned aquarium. We don't give anything away for free. As a society, of course, there are individual charities. In your day, immigrants could earn ten to twenty times more from government welfare than they could by working hard jobs in the hot sun of their homelands. He waves his hand. But these are boring issues, unworthy of our intellects. If you want to move here, come on by. But you'll have to submit your children to scans, which means no hitting, no yelling, no abuse. What about you? Did you have scans? I came as an adult. My parents were pretty good, but I still had a lot of work to do to fix my trauma, to have scans good enough to be insured by a DRO. Work, self-knowledge, talk therapy. But enough about me. They say to immigrants, you will have to earn your keep or find some charity. It's similar to the start of your country, the geography we both still share. He who does not work shall not eat. I scowl. That's a quote from communism. Cornelius half-hides a smile by pursing his lips. Well, your government controlled much more than half of the income of your citizens. Communism was 100% control. You were maybe 75. So you were much closer to communism than us than the present. Well, these debates seem quite arcane. Unworthy, I think you said, so... How does this work? Again, he just stares at me. I gesture angrily. You know, what am I charged with? How am I morally responsible? What is my punishment? How will this work? What are the laws? Cornelius takes a deep breath and stands. Oh, my doctor keeps nagging me to walk more, and my health insurance is going up if I don't. So if you can manage it, we should take a turn around the gardens. He signs me out, and I summon my cade. We walk through a wall with the outline of door. Most unsettling, it makes me feel like a ghost, but I feel nothing passing through. Outside, a lush green sloping hill eases down to a forest of oak and elm. In the distance, I can see slender spires that seem to defy gravity, and that would snap before a medium wind. I don't have my glasses, but my eyes instantly focus on the distance, and I can see small dots of moving something, machines probably, and I gasp involuntarily. I can see, I exclaim. Cornelius smiles. Well, of course we fixed your eyesight. We are not barbarians. It's my first time out, I murmur. I take a deep breath through my nose. That air is, wow. Wow. More wealth, less pollution, says Cornelius. My eyes ache slightly, reminding me of the time Hamish and I spent an entire day skipping from movie to movie in a theatre, then stumbling out half-blind into the late afternoon sunshine. It is quiet out here. I spent my entire life in cities, in the noise and screams and sirens and trucks and horns and catcalls, I didn't even realize I had developed mild tinnitus until one weekend in a terminally silent rural retreat my wife dragged me to so we could work on our marriage. I shake my head, gazing at the clean wonders of simple nature spread before me. A faint tendril of peace drifts through the eternal tension in my gut. I feel it passing through in wonder, then shudder. "'So damn peaceful,' I whisper, then clear my throat. <clears> throat. "'My wife always loved these nature pictures, tall trees, majestic mountains. "'I just saw death berries, biting birds, and freezing to death on a snow-capped peak. "'Nature just made me itchy, but I have a weird impulse to just walk through those woods. "'Ugh, they probably have butterflies that sing your name,' Cornelia smiles. "'We have this concept.' of a benevolent universe, which I suppose sounds flaky or mystical to you, but really it's the argument, the perspective, that nature is very kind to those who respect her rules. And I'm sorry to anthropomorphize natural reality, but I am a sentimental soul. All that we have, all that we have achieved, is based upon the enslavement of our minds to the rules of nature, the rules of logic that we get from her, and the rules of morality that we inevitably impose upon each other. He smiles in deep contentment. And all of this was available to everyone, every society, every place, throughout any time in human history. I do sometimes think of the ancient Romans and speak of them when my wife wants to have a nap, I think, and remember that they knew all about the steam engine and the market system, and there was no actual reason why they could not have had the Industrial Revolution. I know, I know, slavery and all that. But they also had the conception of human rights, which they applied to the rulers and the upper middle class. And it pains me now, even now, thousands of years later, that someone didn't just Take all of those ingredients and put them together and save the world over two thousand years of misery, slavery, and subjugation. The modern world is a fantastical dish, a beautiful thing, and the ingredients were scattered all around the chefs of human history. They just had to reach out and open them and mix them, and what we have now could have been achieved at any time. I open my mouth to speak hotly, then close it again. Although Cornelius is not looking at me, he turns his head and says, Whatever you say, I cannot repeat. That has not changed. Everything that everyone says to me about this modern world is kind of like an advertisement, like like you're in a cult. It's a middle-aged woman with too much makeup. Let's say that it is all... As wonderful as you believe. And my God, the air does smell sweet here. I will grant you that without hesitation. And you have cured my disease and and brought me back to life and fixed my eyesight and, I don't know, made my heart grow three sizes. What do I know? So maybe it is perfect and I'm just a bitter historical cynic. But if you want to lay at my feet all these cataclysms and disasters and prevention of this paradise, this heaven on earth, then you will have a tough case to make, because I did the best I could with the knowledge I had, murmured Cornelius. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's like when you see your favorite band playing your favorite song. You know it so well that you just feel compelled to sing along, however badly. He turns to me. This is the typical excuse, and I will call it An excuse, because we are going to have to start preparing to defend you at some point. I snort. I think I may have to consult with more than one person. Cornelius nods. A second opinion is always wise. Or a third, or a fourth. But if I may suggest, our laws are so simple, because we profit from resolution, not complexity. So you will be able to understand the law you are bound by within a few minutes, believe it or not. He pauses for a moment. It really comes down to the rapport or personal connection you have with your representative. Personalities have a kind of synchronicity, in my experience. The law is as simple as simple arithmetic. You don't need an even smarter math teacher to teach you the basics. But you learn or or, or share in the learning based upon the synchronicity of your minds. I think that you and I can have that synchronicity. I have felt that ever since I first saw your speeches. He laughs shortly. (laughs) Perhaps we are related or come from the same tribe of origin. I see myself very easily fitting into your world. Which means that, I think, I can help you fit into this world, my world, to make it our world. Maybe you will find that with someone else. Even more, in which case, please hire them. His eyes narrow. But I will fight for you. I have no ambiguity about that at all. I don't agree with you being charged, I don't agree with you being tried, and I-like you as a person. You are a man of extraordinary talents and passions, not a dinosaur, but old blood that can refresh the New World, so to speak." He laughs again, shaking his head. (laughs) "I am rambling. All the while I am watching all the emotions pass over your face like so many clouds. Everyone here just waits for other people to finish talking with this... He sweeps his open palm up and down in front of his nose. Blankness. Have you noticed? I strongly resist the urge to nod but fail. Cornelius snaps his fingers. Exactly. And their waiting seems to just pull the words out of you like fish on a hook this must be resisted he says energetically and together we shall resist i say ah as you are an immigrant do he nods in obvious satisfaction at my insight. precisely he thumps his chest raised in a state now stateless why did you come Well, that is a long story. I gesture at the sun, whitewashing a murky cloud on the mid-horizon. It is only mid-afternoon. Despite what my friends say, I do believe I can be brief. In my, well, I'm not supposed to say home country anymore, I used to nag my wife about that when we first got married and she would talk about going home to visit her parents and I would say to her that I am now her home. Our house is her home. That is just where she used to live. (laughs) So, where I come from, we have... If you stack the law books, yes, they still have them, on their side, one on top of the other, they reach two stories of a building high. I actually know this in fact because once one of my clients was prosecuted for violating an obscure law and I actually stacked all of the law books right there in the courtroom which fortunately had a very high ceiling and before I had finished I was punished by the judge although I had a good point which is how on earth are we supposed to expect people to obey the law when the law is like memorizing all of the plays and poems of Shakespeare in three different languages as well. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. That is an old historical argument. And I agree with that. As long as the law is not so complex that no one man, no one person, understands it completely. He gestures at me. And in your country, this land, as it used to be, it was the same thing. Thousands of laws, hundreds of thousands of regulations. It was impossible for people to obey the law. Wasn't there a book about people regularly committing three felonies a day back in your day? I could not keep up with the law, but I was supposed to inflict it on people with no legal training at all? He takes a deep breath. And there I was, one weekend, at a conference about new regulations, new laws, and I felt my brain, the the thread in my mind, just kind of snap. He lowers his voice, as if someone of significance could hear us. And I really think that this also happened to my colleagues my fellow lawyers, but for some reason I was unable to tie the broken thread back together, or ignore the snapping sound like a violin string breaking in some ancient Chekhov play. And I could not inflict a law on the average citizen that I, with all my training, could never fully understand. It felt less like a legal system, and more like a voodoo curse. The law of my land was a strange beast. <laughs> a most odd net. Because it would catch all the smaller fish while letting the bigger fish, the sharks, swim free and clear. And in my research on legal systems, I came across what had been... <laughs> and this sounds strange because it, it is very hard to suppress information now. It's so available everywhere. But none of my training had ever exposed me to the laws here but i came across them and and i i'm not ashamed to say it i just wept they are as simple as sunrise i shrug angrily jazz seems simple to the experienced players wisely bitter he says wagging his forefinger at me but it really is He stops walking and plants his two feet shoulder-width apart. I can see his left toes wiggling through his soft brown shoes. On the one hand, foot, you have the non-aggression principle, thou shalt not initiate force. On the other, you have a respect for property rights. These are so rarely violated that you could starve to death prosecuting them. They have the right idea about childhood here. It is the furnace for the future. If we clap our hands together over our two feet, we have the final ingredient. Keep your word. I shrug contemptuously. This supposed holy trinity is the basis of every common law system throughout the world. I fail to see the genius. Yes, well, the trick is in the word basis. Your society, your world, built from these simple principles, an entirely contradictory cathedral, complexity. There are only 26 letters, but a sophist can twist them into endless confusion, can literally drive people mad with his language. The genius is in the simplicity. Do not use violence. Respect property. Keep your word. That is the entirety of the law. I am about to speak, but Cornelius pulls out a short pamphlet, perhaps 20 pages long, from his jacket pocket. He hands it to me. In your honor, I had this printed out so you could feel the weight of how few laws there are. I look at the cover. The laws of anarchy? Well, that seems like quite the contradiction. He nods. I felt the same way. I received the same propaganda. Anarchy simply means without rulers. It does not mean without rules. In fact, the argument went and was resolved centuries ago, that a statist society has incentives to create such complexity of laws that it ends up existing without any comprehensible rules at all. The lawyers enjoy the complexity because they get paid well for navigating it. The courts enjoy the complexity because they can be used to punish the enemies of the state. And the state, of course, enjoys the complexity because it can deem anyone illegal for just about anything. He, between his teeth loudly, it is, of course, far too much power for any human being to wield. We are like delicate little fuses. Power runs through us and we blow our conscience. I have a sudden urge to throw this little booklet away from me and and suddenly have the image of myself as a demon being handed a holy text. "'You do not want to open it,' says Cornelius softly. "'I actually made a bet with myself that you would not open it. I would be shocked. If you did, you you probably want to throw it into the forest below. I hate being predictable because that means I am controllable.' But I know that if I open the booklet, I'm still being controlled. I will look at it later, I say flatly. Yes, you will, I know, says Cornelius reassuringly. He turns to me, looking into my face, my eyes. Do you like me? Do you care? He laughs. (laughs) Oh, how quick your response is. (sighs) If you like me... We can work together. I can defend you. I promise you that I have no arcane knowledge of arcane laws. You can become a lawyer over a long weekend if you want. It's so simple. But if you like me, if you understand that I believe in you and want to protect you from the vengeance of the present, which still remembers the cataclysms and might in fact be looking for a scapegoat, that's my theory, then we can work together not only can we survive what is to come, but we can emerge wiser, better, like a coal under pressure turning into a diamond. He smiles self-consciously at the cliché of his analogy. I purse my lips. Something my philosophy teacher said, oh God, so many years ago now. Compared to what? How can I say if I like you? I've met so few people here. He wags his finger at me again, wisely said most hesitant and wise and you've been through a lot by gaining your life you've lost the entire world i grew up not entirely opposite to how you grew up and i have made the transition to a free society and i've raised my children in the manner of the new world and it is a beautiful thing it does work and they are wonderful people I have made the journey that you are going to make over the next few weeks. In your day, trials could take years. I'm not sure if you read the old novel Bleak House, but it was along those lines. But here, justice delayed is justice denied. And a trial, even one as complex as yours, will only take about a week. Because if it goes on for much longer, the process is the punishment. As soon as you choose your counsel, your representative, the trial will start within a few days and be over in a week. A week after it starts, I mean. But you will not have very long to choose your representative because that's just another way of delaying the trial. Do you follow? I smile thinly as long as I discard the tangents. Cornelius roars with laughter and grabs my hand... (laughs) It is like we are already married. I think we could get along, but you have not answered any of my six objections. Yes, he replies fluidly, ticking off his fingers. Uh, the statute of limitations, judging you by our current legal system, your status as an unwilling refugee, your incapacity to know our laws, your inability, our inability, to cross examine witnesses or your accusers were, were those what you mean? Yes. I say, impressed despite myself at his steel-trap ability to retain earlier statements. I will answer them now, if you like. I nod. Have you ever known a crazy person? Yes, of course. Two. I hired one of them as my campaign manager and married the other. No. Seriously. I shrug. Yeah, the bachelor uncle who lived in the attic and collected strange artifacts that no one understands. I suppose that would be the craziest I knew. Would he have been guilty of a crime if he had committed it? Was he sane enough? I don't know, but probably not towards the end of his life. He got Alzheimer's and really went off the rails. Cornelius grimaces. It seems strange to offer sympathies for a death centuries past. Forget that. The law, and I'm speaking in ideals here, as well as what is practiced in the present, should only punish a man for violating moral standards that he himself accepts. I know, you have a million objections. Give me a moment, please. We punish a thief for stealing because he objects to us stealing his time by punishing him. A man steals a month's worth of labor from his neighbor, then spends a year in prison. We punish him because he objects to the year we are taking from him, just as his neighbor objects to the month that was stolen from him. A thief takes a car and then is outraged if someone steals the car from him. It is through his outrage that we can punish him because he wishes to retain the property rights he has violated in others. Makes sense? I've never heard it put that way, but yeah, I suppose the insanity defense is when a man who steals does not object to things being stolen from him. Cornelius snaps his fingers. Exactly. We punish a murderer and a rapist and a man who commits assault for the same reason. They strongly object to their own behavior being inflicted on them, which means that they accept that thou shalt not of whatever they did. As the sun begins to set and the shadows stretch, a tiny light begins to arise in my mind, like an unfathomably distant fireworks show. I murmur, slave owner objects to being sold into slavery precisely and it doesn't matter what the laws are it doesn't matter what his government permits him to do it doesn't matter what he enforces upon others morality is universal and if he objects to being subjugated under that which he inflicts on others then he is as guilty as sin Cornelius draws out the last words do unto others as you would have them do unto you I say. His eyes widen slightly. I was not sure how well you had absorbed your childhood theology. But yes, that is the essence of the golden rule. Yes, treat others as you want to be treated. But if you strongly object to being treated how you treat others, then we need no other example or recourse or external law. I take a deep breath and sit down suddenly on the grass. I do not even try to make it look voluntary. So, what, uh, am I going to be judged by my own conscience? Is, is, is there some a robot that is going to crawl into my ear and unravel my entire inner life, or, or, or a machine that no, knows if I'm lying somehow? Cornelius sits backwards, and a brown chair erupts downwards from his trousers. He smiles, apologetically. Getting down is the easy part. I shall have to sit. What you said are all the options that you have considered in the rapidity of your mind. These have all been suggested, that judges deploy some form of truth serum or some mind-reading device or some scan for falsehood. But although this society wishes to outsource just about everything to robots and machines, it draws the line, for reasons some of which I can understand, at using machines to judge morality. It is the final frontier of humanity, a line they will not cross. What is most essentially human about us is our capacity for morality. And while it is fine to have a machine make your food or support your ample rear end, it is not allowed for a machine to judge your conscience. Also, the argument goes, if we outsource moral judgment to machinery, We lose our capacity to judge morality ourselves, which means we lose what is most human, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. So no, long story short, you will not be invaded and unraveled by machines or drugs or scans. This will be a human conversation with a judge, a jury, lawyers and representatives, a prosecution and defense with you and your entire history right at the center. I laugh shocked bitterness the ancient and long dead father gregory arises in my mind as if he had been sleeping for centuries with me and is awoken by reinforced and external self-righteousness in the long buried graveyard of my childhood as we strode between the stones he knew that i was slipping away to the material to the ambitious to the acquisitive immorality of my mere blood and bone mammalian nature his words grew desperate as our connection frayed and eventually snapped. God has a backup plan for rejecting him, he said. God is also an analogy for our conscience, which he has placed within us for the inevitable day that we decide to go alone. Our conscience will draw us back to God, because our conscience is God. The closest we get to him will still be mortal. Our conscience is the universality of the morality we enact in the style of Immanuel Kant. Our conscience takes our own actions and universalizes them, makes them eternal, whether we like that or not. And we can pretend to escape God's judgment by rejecting him, but the God within, the fragment of the universal divine that cannot be killed in our mind, that will always judge us. Do you understand, child? You will always be judged though you become the most staunch and bitter atheist in the world. And here is the great secret of the modern world, my friend. His voice grew soft and annoying. When you reject God, and I know you are very close, very, you reject the possibility of forgiveness. God himself, God entire, will forgive you your transgressions. But the fragment of God within us called the conscience does not have that capacity. I suppose God needed to make himself small enough to fit in our mind, which means he had to shave off the whole forgiveness part. If you abandon God, or rather when, since it happens to all, thinking that you will escape morality, all you are doing is escaping the possibility of forgiveness because you will be judged by the future, whether you like it or not. And it is far better to have the forgiveness of God on your side, rather than the somewhat demonic intransigence of your own conscience. But you will be judged by the future, like it or not. A shiver at this memory and feel great rage. Let's not pretend that Father Gregory could see through his roomy eyes through the tunnel of time to this moment of reawakening, of, of, of my rebirth, of being born again, to the judgment of the future, that he predicted, that he predicted in order to scare me, in order to keep me close. He wanted me to abandon power over the material so that he could retain his power over me. It was the same thing from the other side. Cornelius leans over me, his bulk and white hair blotting out the sky. What are you thinking? he asks gently. I refuse to participate, I say coldly. If your government was prosecuting a man, would that be an option for him? (sighs) But you are so much better than me, it can't be compared, I say bitterly. So you are saying that it is better not to prosecute someone who refuses to participate? Shut the hell up, I say in a kind of panic, and then instantly, savagely smooth my own passions. I do not apologize. You do not have to participate, says Cornelius. The closest analogy would be a civil matter in your time. If you don't participate, you are tried in absentia, and a judgment will be entered against you. I grunt. Come on. We both know the truth. This is just going to be a show trial. A kangaroo court, they used to call it. I promise you, my friend, I will not let that happen. Promises, promises. It seemed probable that no one even knew that song anymore. In my day, the idea that a lawyer had power over the courts was laughable. It is not your day any longer. I say nothing. Because all my responses seem petty and resentful, as I am repeatedly reminded. I finally say, Okay. So what the hell are you going to do to get me out of this? If I'm tried for... War crimes or or some grand immorality? Is everyone now so perfectly principled that they're just going to respect you for your abstract moral stand? Cornelius turns to me. Ah, for me to answer that... I know you were a man for keeping secrets, but, but that was then. If you get me off, you can tell me you have three testicles and I will take it to my grave. Cornelius gestures at the distant forest, the distant slender spirals. It's a little smug, a little too certain. It has lost the spice of self-doubt. Humanity was supposed to be on a journey, not squatting with infinite self-satisfaction on a mere destination. Why are we not going to the stars? What is our next goal? You strive or you sicken? I suppose... I want more than you to wake up. You want to undermine. Cornelius considers the word for a long moment. A rabbit emerges from the forest, licks its paws, then vanishes into the undergrowth. I say, if I was still sleeping, I would never have known that rabbit existed. It is cheesy undergraduate philosophy 101, but... Somehow, I do not regret saying it. This world takes entirely too much for granted, Cornelius says, finally turning to me again. If they survive us, together, I will accept their wisdom. I feel a sudden flurry of hope, like hummingbirds in my chest. Then, let's take it down, together